And so then it's led to this very huge, um, you know, unassisted birth movement because women want autonomy and they should want that. I wanted that. I birthed unassisted. I get it. I'm not critical of that movement in any kind of way. But sometimes I think people now are almost forced into it. It's like being forced into a home birth because your doctor isn't respecting what you want. Right. And right. so you really, you were going to birth in the hospital up until a few weeks ago, and now yeah. your baby's due in a few weeks, and you're really switching gears, and you're not 100% on board, but you know you can't do that because you'll end up with all of the scary things that they're threatening right now. And so it's really hard, and we have, we have uh, conversations all the time in the midwifery community. If somebody's switching gears at the last minute to have a home birth, are they really um, somebody that you want to take on because it, it could be a higher risk situation. Hi, this is Kimberly Ann Johnson. I'm Kyle Kingsbury. Hello, I'm Paul Check. I'm Sarah Gustafson. Je m'appelle What's up, everybody? It's Nathan. You found your way to the Holistic OBGYN podcast, and uh, for that, I'm very grateful. I am an OBGYN. I do home birth here in the Louisville, Kentucky region, although right now at this time, I'm out in California awaiting a birth, a couple births actually, while I'm out here. And um, we were about two weeks out from the Twins Reach Conference. First annual here in Louisville had a hundred plus people fully charged up and ready to learn um, in an ongoing fashion about the nuances around Twins and Breach. And my guest today was originally invited to be one of the midwifery presenters and um, it was going to be a balance between three OBs and three midwives, but that was my that was my effort to balance out the energy between the obstetrics medical model of birth. Um, although the presenters are very much divested from the system, you know we all are kind of cut from that cloth. Us OBs, um, the other presenters were all going to be coming from the home birth sort of midwifery, um, that sort of way of of viewing birth and attending to birth. And um, Christine, my guest today, she is a powerhouse of knowledge. She has traveled the world with Médecins Sans Frontières, also known as MSF or Doctors Without Borders. And she has attended 520, 520 breach births because of the high volume of births that she attends in places like Afghanistan and refugee camps in the Sudan and you know across South America. And she um, shares quite a bit on this episode about her, after having gone to so many breach births, her sort of hesitations around intervening in the ways that maybe we were trained in the medical system, or even many midwives were trained, you know. And gosh, had she been at the conference, it would have really, really changed. I think the energy shifted the energy quite a bit because Christine just brings such a tremendous wave of positivity and enlightenment around this topic. So I wanted to have her on the podcast today to talk a little bit about the Twins Breach Conference, but also, most importantly, to, to learn a little bit more from her. You know, as doctors, we sort of act and behave as if we're 
kind of the end all be all to the conversation. And I certainly realized early in my training that, man, there's CNMs here in the hospital. I was working at Kaiser at the time. I better, I better stick with them, hang with them. And they became very, very close friends to me, Suzanne Minich and, um, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, Corinne, Corinne Asher Galloway. <laughs> and there was a couple of midwives that had come and gone, but they really, really held me, um, held me close during that training. And I have a lot of love for them. They probably were the ultimate motivation for me to see birth differently and to, to remain as low intervention as possible. And Christine's story is that she was a certified professional midwife, but she actually started as a what used to be called a lay midwife and learned from a lot of traditional midwives here in the States and then started going abroad and has amassed more birth experience than probably, probably anybody that you hear on a podcast anyways, although I'm hoping to change that. So I loved having her on today, kind of last minute. She just agreed. We'd been chatting on the phone about some things. And I said, do you want to just jump on and record a conversation? Because she and I have such rich conversations. And she was she was very gracious. And it was like, yeah, I'm actually open right now. So bam, what's to follow is uh, a very impromptu, very lovely conversation as always. Christine was previously on the podcast. And I'm going to link that former episode or the, the last appearance. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to link that in the show notes. I'm trying to find it right now for you, but we had talked, it's episode 83. It was back from August, 2022. Oh my God. It was almost exactly a year ago, almost to the day. That's amazing. Um, we had talked then about birth work in a resource poor setting, but more importantly, what happens when a mom dies? What happens when a baby dies? Right. And it's not necessarily a, med a failure of medical sciences. Sometimes this is just a part of birth work. So I definitely want you to go check that one out. That was a year ago, episode 83. The title is Christine Laria, What Does Birth Work Look Like Without Access to a Surgeon? That's a great episode, really, really great episode. Even, we even embedded a poem that she had read that was an award-winning winning poem she had read about the care of a little a baby that died, and um, or the mother who had died, and there was this little baby that I was orphaned in the childbirth process. It's really beautiful. This um, podcast is a completely free, a completely free resource for you. And in order to pay the producers and the audio guy and the video team and the graphics people and all of that, we have to have a couple sponsors. So my first sponsor, I'll make this quick. We're actually paring these down. We don't have as many sponsors now because I want this to be relatively ad-free, but I haven't yet figured out a way to balance out the costs. Like with the Twins Breach Conference, this podcast is actually not a income-generating activity. This is something I do from the love of my heart. Um, so I'm very fortunate to have companies like BirthFit and WeNatal as our uh, as our sponsors. So BirthFit, if you don't know, is a company run by Lindsay Matthews Canty, who just welcomed her own baby at home, um, and who is very beloved in the community. She's a chiropractor, and um, she has studied a variety of different modalities in order to help women care for themselves to the best of their ability before, during, and after pregnancy. And BirthFit trains professionals who are specifically geared towards a nervous system um, supported strength and conditioning lifestyle program, but also nourishing yourself on the mental, emotional, physical levels. She has um, really great connections, many of whom I've become friends with, like Dr. Monique Andrews, who um, is also a chiropractor and speaks to the autonomic ladder, your dorsal vagal, your sympathetic, your, your ventral vagal, these various components of the nervous system and how we can apply that to pregnancy and to the co-regulation between mother and baby and the um, 
and really how to utilize that in your postpartum recovery. So, you know, there's this period after you have a baby during which I really recommend lying in, really nesting, really connecting to yourself, this new version of yourself and to this new baby that you've just done this incredibly hard job of growing and nurturing within. And now they're outside and you have to to bear witness to what they're going through. That's tremendously hard. And our focus can be, it doesn't have to be, but it can be to lie in and gradually get yourself back to um, exercise and to movement and to all of the stuff that life throws at us. So BirthFit's very special. And I hope you'll go to birthfit.com, check out their programs. If you want to join their B community, where they talk about a lot of what I just described, you can use code BELOVED to get a free month there, or you can check out their postpartum basics program which again, you'll get 20% off with code, same code, Beloved. Um, I've done their, their coaching certification program. It's just brilliant. They're really, really doing great work. And I'm super, super um, thrilled to have them as an ongoing sponsor. And the other company that has shown up in big ways is Weenatal. There's a lot of prenatal vitamins out there. In fact, if you go to your the fanciest grocery store, forget Whole Foods, go to the really expensive one. That seems to have all the really, really nuanced, very specific items on the shelves that you can only get there. And you look at their prenatal vitamins, and and frankly, you're not going to be very impressed if you know what you're looking for. Look at the levels of choline. Look at vitamin D. Are they using folic acid or folate? Well, we Natal has all of that dialed in. This company is not only supported by yours truly, but also Dr. Mark Hyman, who's kind of like the the face of functional medicine here in the United States, probably elsewhere as well, but. I love them because they're doing the right thing with the nutrition and you don't have to take 10 capsules per day to get your your um, insurance that you're getting all of these nutrients. You can um, only take three capsules per day. And when you subscribe, you go to weenatal.com slash beloved, subscribe, and they will send you his and hers vitamins, or you can just choose one. And they send you these glass bottles. And then um, every month you get in these recycled plastic sleeves, you get more capsules to refill your glass canister. So you're minimizing waste is also helpful for the planet. Um, there's going to be an upcoming interview here with Betty Ann Davis and her um, and her husband, who are, who are really going to riff on this connection between birth and the eco- greater ecology of the world, which, as you know, if you've listened to this podcast, is very, very near and dear to me. But we need to be conscious about packaging. We need to be conscious about the nutrients. And we need to also send you a journal in order to help you dial in some of the mental, emotional, and even spiritual realities of what it means to grow a baby and start a family. So I love them. I think they're doing really, really great work. I'm so happy to have them as a sponsor on the podcast. And as a special gift to listeners, you can go to weenatal.com slash beloved, add either his or hers or both to your cart, and then add a bottle of their Omega DHA plus fish oil, and you will get that bottle of fish oil for free. Now, fish oil comes in a variety of flavors. One thing I want to point out about the Omega DHA Plus at um, at Weenatal is you have to look at what's in what's in these various vials. What you want to be aiming for is about a gram of EPA. I believe it's eicosapentaenoic acid. Check out how much is in the fish oil that you're taking. You want to be taking in about a gram per day, and you don't have to worry about mercury and all this stuff, but these these omega-3 fatty acids are critical for the development of your child's nervous system, um, both in the uterus as well as when the baby comes out. You want them to be set up for a lifetime of, of um, just adequate 
neurodevelopment, et cetera. When you look at the back of this weenadal fish oil and compare it to others, you're going to see that a single dose, single serving, has 830 milligrams of EPA. I don't know of any other fish oil on the market that has that much in a single serving. Like I've been taking fish oil for a long time, and man, that's a ton. So you're not only getting the best prenatal vitamin on the market, they're throwing in a free bottle of their DHA+, plus, their Omega DHA+. plus. So go to weenatal.com slash beloved, support these guys, because I really believe in what they're doing, and I wouldn't have them as sponsors if they weren't fully in alignment with what I'm doing here at the Holistic OBGYN. Or if you want to find me in my practice, Beloved Holistics, if you want any of my courses, bornfreemethod.com is where that's at. We've got another course coming out here called Clear and Free. Stay tuned for the link to that. We'll put it in the uh, podcast description when it's released. I've said enough. I appreciate you guys. If anything here strikes you as compelling in any way, please leave five stars on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings mean so much to me, the sponsors, and it really helps get these conversations out into the world to those who need to hear them. So um, share it with your friends. Leave a review. If you haven't tuned into YouTube, you can see Christine speaking in the flesh on our YouTube channel. Again, it's the Holistic OBGYN. And subscribe there. Love to hear from you as well. Send me a message. I'm on Instagram at Nathan Riley OBGYN, also on TikTok and Facebook and all those other things. But um, I think I've blabbered enough. I want you to hear from Christine because she is a legend in the field, and I feel very honored to call her my friend. Christine, it's a pleasure to see you virtually. I was hoping to have seen you at our recent Twins Breach Conference in Louisville, but, you know, we continue to be remote friends, and um, and eventually I'm going to find a way to go and learn from you, as I've learned from so many midwives in the, uh, in the past. So welcome back to the podcast. Today we're going to talk a little bit about your work with Breach, and maybe even bridging some gaps within the traditional versus what I guess the opposite would be non-traditional or the certification licensure pathway. I mean, there's all these various terms that are thrown around and it's a little bit hard for me to navigate. So hopefully we can unpack a little bit of that and maybe some insights that you've gained as a uh, medicine, sans fr- medicine, medicine sans frontier midwife globally. Mm-hmm. Um, so first off, welcome. It's great to see you this morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. I am... Um, I've been very, very impressed with, uh, well, our past conversations, kind of the way you show up in integrity, and sometimes having integrity requires us to acknowledge that we have no idea what we're talking about. And I, I think that you and I both have have riffed on that a little bit, where it's like, I don't know what the experience of, let's say, a woman who you know, grew up in sub-Saharan Africa or East Africa or who spent time giving birth on a, in a refugee camp. It's hard for me to relate to that, but you actually do have some direct experience that you um, allows you to kind of provide some very interesting insights um, into how we might change and, and, um, and commune around change in maternity care from a variety of experiences you've had outside of the country. So, um, Doctors Without Borders is the American term, but Médecins Sans Frontières is, is the medical arm of a, a large national, uh, a, non, uh, a multinational, non-governmental organization. And you are a, a pretty top dog with regards to bringing in resources and some care. And 
collaboration for the midwives that are doing this work in some of these areas. And as a result, you've also been to a lot more breech births, butt down or feet down births than anybody who looks like me. So uh, I, I would be very, very honored to learn from you in person someday. But for now, why don't we talk a little bit about some of your experiences with breech birth and how you can bring that into maybe even the 2024 Twins Breach Conference. I don't know. Maybe we're, maybe we're hinting at something in the future for us. But um, I don't know. Where do you want to start with that conversation? That's a big one, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, well, first of all, I, when I'm teaching, when I go out to teach, because I teach for um, Breach Without Borders, uh, all over the world, we we go every place. So recently, I'm back from uh, Mexico and and Guatemala, and then uh, the most recent was Des Moines and Quad Cities, and it's lovely. But when I introduce myself, I I tell everybody that I am uh, I was a I was trained as a traditional midwife. I did an apprenticeship in the Amish community um, over 34 years ago, and. I learned breach and I learned twins and I learned that birth was this normal, natural thing. And every once in a while, um, things went wrong and you had to be able to recognize when things were kind of heading mm. that way. And then that's when you intervene. But otherwise, you know, less is more and you just kind of sit by and and most of the time birth works. And, yeah. you know, fast forward 34 years later and I, I go to these extreme places, as you said, and I, and I practice, I call it extreme midwifery because there are no obstetricians where I am, or there haven't been thus far. And so these women walk in with any um, degree of super risky things and scary things and, and stuff that I, I don't even, I never seen before. And I have to figure out how to deal with it along with the national staff, but it's my responsibility to be managing them. And so I see these things and, um, and in spite of it all, I still come back to birth is a normal natural process that the less is more and the less we intervene, the better the outcomes are. And even in the most extreme circumstances with the, just the small amount of resources we have in the field, and it is a small amount, it's nothing fancy. Uh, we're still seeing good outcomes and it's still um, it's still possible to be able to uh, not only get through a birth safely, but have two alive people in the end. And and so it hasn't changed my perspective. You would think that, oh, dealing with a lot of high risk things now, you really realize how scary and, and high risk birth can be. Mm, yeah, but I've seen some amazing things in the field and it's actually reinforced that let's just leave this alone, uh, you know, depending and then and intervene when and where we need to, but to the minimal amount yeah. possible. Yeah, I would say for any birth worker listening, you know, going to 20 births is a tremendous amount of, of, of uh, patience and presence, right? Going to 2000 births. Now you actually have a whole data set from which you can draw real numbers. When I'm the person here who's the sole person who's going to, you know, call for intervention or say, hey, I don't think interventions, you know, required or whatever, that's the primary birth attendant or whatever you want to call it. When you've gone to so many, you start to realize that these numbers, these bad things truly are the exception and not the rule. Next when you've time. only gone to like 20 or 30 
you're waiting for that really bad one to happen. It's just a natural part of the work is you've heard the mm -hmm. horror stories. Hopefully that never happens to me. But when you go to enough, you realize, okay, it will happen. When it happens, yeah. I'm ready. And it's unlikely to happen on any given day. That's right. a really hard thing to balance, I imagine, when you're in mm -hmm. a totally unknown space and you don't have all of the hospital resources and a 20-minute drive you know, by an ambulance down the road as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You mentioned uh, traditional midwifery. Can you tell me what that means when a person says that they have trained as a traditional midwife, at least from your, from your experience? You mentioned the Amish communities, which I think is a great place to start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, back in the olden days, we were called lay midwives because we didn't have any certification and, uh, and we were just out in the community. We, we learned from each other um, through apprenticeship model and so forth. And so that is uh, how I learned. And right as I was getting out of my apprenticeship, the NARM was coming into being and the CPM was coming, but it wasn't a thing yet. And uh, I the practiced CPM is a, a certified professional midwife. That's probably the most common out of hospital midwifery uh, yeah. style of practice, I suppose you could say, in the United States. Mm -hmm. And and I was really lucky in that I I did a dual apprenticeship. I apprenticed with the midwife in the Amish community. She was non Amish, but she was in that community. And then I also apprenticed with a. Um, a certified nurse midwife who had previously been a mid, uh, lay midwife and then went to nursing school and became a certified nurse midwife. And so she had both of those perspectives, but I went to birth with both of them and I learned different ways of midwifery. And I asked her a lot about being a CNM and I considered doing that. And then I decided I did not want to do that path. I wanted to be less medicalized. Um, mm -hmm. And so I made that conscious decision to continue on. And honestly, I practiced as a midwife, a lay midwife or traditional midwife, as I would say now, um, for 17 years. I was illegal uh, for 17 years. So I understand um, what that's like to be underground and to have people find you by word of mouth way before the internet. Yeah. And so, yeah. um, and I, and I have friends who were arrested and I know people who were prosecuted. And so um, it's, it's a very real thing for me, um, that whole um, legal, illegal part of it. Um, and it's, I, it's one of the reasons actually that I don't, I don't practice in the U S anymore, really. I'm mostly in the field. I do, uh, have license in Wisconsin and Michigan, and I assist other midwives, and I attend multiples once in a while and breaches here and there. But but I don't have my own practice, and a yeah. lot of it's because of the politics. Um, so uh, I did mm. get my CPM, but when I talk to groups of midwives, I let them know that the day that I got that piece of paper, it didn't make me any better of a midwife than I was the day before <laughs> I had the paper. Like yeah. all of the things that I, you know, and just, uh, just so that they know, so that they understand that it, the reason I got it was because it was going to open more doors for me. And honestly, mm. I wouldn't be able to work with MSF right now if I didn't have a CPM. So I'm grateful that I have that, but it didn't make me a better midwife. I have to do the continuing education and the continuing learning, um, from other midwives, um, in order to be the best midwife that I can be. Yeah, 
You you mentioned certified nurse midwives, which I think certified nurse midwives don't get a fair shake. You know, these are these are women who have gone through extra education. They understand the the inner intricacies of what labor and delivery might look like, or um, what hospital care in general might look like. They realize that there's a lot of benefits to having hospitals. And when a certified nurse midwife decides, okay. There's no question, guys, if you're a certified nurse midwife versus somebody who trained like you, you're going to have a slightly more medicalized look at birth in the way that I did. However, when you meet one that wants to step out and go into community birth, that is power. For me, that's like there's something important and and very um, uh, there's a passion there. There's a reason that you're stepping out of the system. And that to me is somebody that really there's a kernel of something that can be nurtured by somebody like you in order to balance the reality of, yes, sometimes bad things happen and we need the medical system versus I'm not mm-hmm. so sure that that is the default that I want. And I want to I want to expand on my skills by stepping out into the community. That to me seems like a path that would be maybe even a, maybe even more challenging than OB, in an OB doing what I do, which is to go out into the community. Because, you know, people say, you know, you're not a you're not a midwife the way that a CPM is or whatever you're more of a doctor. And it's like, maybe that's true. But this person's also now waking up to the reality that I want to expand my toolkit. And that that makes a, C- a CNM that goes this path, I think, a little extra special in a way, not to say that there's a right or wrong or better or worse. Yeah. Um, and you, you mentioned a lot of the restrictions on people's practice. Without a CPM in many states, you are inevitably going to find a confrontation with the law because they don't see you as valuable until you have that piece of paper. Even if you had attended a million births, let's say in, I don't know, Guatemala, and you come to the States, you aren't going to get a lick of respect unless you have this damn piece of paper, which to me is why there's, I, I, I can sense that there's a lot of tension around licensure and not licensing and, and all of this mm-hmm. because no midwife wants some suit in Frankfurt, Kentucky, telling them what they can and can't do. But the reality is that's the that's the sort of medical legal environment in the United States. So how do you, you know, in case there's somebody young listening, because I definitely want to, the next topic I want to get into is what are the signs that you've noticed that are like, I definitely need to intervene now, because I want to learn that from you as well. But if there's a young birth worker listening or somebody who's maybe compelled to maybe step out of the system and start doing this work or somebody who's had babies and now they want to pursue a birth worker role. What do you advise them if they come to you for a little bit of advice or mentorship? I'm sure people ask you this as to which path to take. Is there a a, a scripted way that you respond to that? Not really. I just kind of put the question back on them. Like what, what do you want to ultimately do? Where do you want to practice? How do you view birth? And what, what kind of time do you want to invest in, in, and money in your education? And, um, and so I just put it back on them and um, they tend to find their ways. I give them um, things to read. I point them in the right direction of, of certain books or, websites or whatever it is. And sometimes uh, to talk with somebody who's done both routes. I have friends who are CPMs and CNMs and it's kind of, um, it's kind of cool. And some were one before the other and some were the opposite. So um, it's, it's interesting. Um, 
and everybody just chooses their path and they have their own reason for choosing their path. And some want prescriptive privileges. And as you know, CPMs yeah. don't generally have prescriptive privileges. So, um, so yeah, it, it just makes, um, it makes a difference in kind of what they want to do with it. And so I just steer them based on that. Yeah. What about licensing? Like what's your overall impression of, is has has licensure done more of i know you're yeah you're you feel exactly the way i do so i'm baiting you into a really hard question so brace yourself everybody <laughs> um has licensure done more good or more harm to the practice of midwifery it's one of those double-edged sword things you know yeah you know in one respect you know I, I, there are both, there are arguments for both sides. I get it. And I really had to look long and hard at that when I, I'm like, do I want to get my CPM? Do I want to go into to this system then where it's going to be either or, and you have, you have clients that you want to respect their autonomy, but your regulations say after yes. 12 hours or 48 hours or 24, you have to do something, but they don't want to do that. You're looking at the situation and from what you know and from what your experience is, it's totally fine. We don't need to do anything, but the regulations say that you do. And the thing is, is if nothing happens, no one will ever find out. But if you have to transport later on, whether it has anything to do with the time limit or not, maybe it's even something else. And then they find out you went over this time limit on this other thing. Mm -hmm. That's where they're going to get you. And it's this big fight and there's all this fear and it's just so difficult. And, and so then it's led to this very huge, um, you know, unassisted birth movement because women want autonomy and they should want that. I wanted that. I birthed unassisted. I get it. I'm not critical of that movement in any kind of way. But sometimes I think people now are almost forced into it. It's like being forced into a home birth because your doctor isn't respecting what you want. Right. And right. so you really, you were going to birth in the hospital up until a few weeks ago, yeah. and now your baby's due in a few weeks, and you're really switching gears, and you're not 100% on board, but you know you can't do that because you'll end up with all of the scary things that they're threatening right now. And so it's really hard. And we have, we have uh, conversations all the time in the midwifery community. If somebody's switching gears at the last minute to have a home birth, are they really um, somebody that you want to take on? Because it, it could be a higher risk situation if you, if something were to go wrong, because they weren't committed from the very beginning. Right. Right. So, yeah. I, just shared this story with you, I think, on the phone the other day, but I had a client who had reached out. She was around 38 weeks, um, and she was like, listen, I'm in a tough spot. I've had two prior C-sections. One of those pregnancies was complicated by HELP syndrome, and there was a custody thing going on in that pregnancy, tremendous amount of stress um, because she wasn't going to have an abortion when she found out she was pregnant, so her partner left her and then wanted custody at the end. Like It was just really nasty. So she ended up having an, uh, a preterm C-section for HELP syndrome at like 35 weeks. And then her second pregnancy developed severe preeclampsia, 36 weeks C-section. Now she's pregnant again. And she's like, I can't do that hospital thing again. So she dialed in her, her diet and put, <clears throat> they don't have a ton of money, but she, they really invested well as to how they can make her um, 
minimize the risks, I guess, as much as possible. And she was pregnant again. Nobody was going to take her because she's so high risk, yet she doesn't want to be in the hospital. And the midwives who are outside of the hospital weren't, weren't feeling super you know, sure in their decision to support her. But the hospital staff would have taken her right to the operating room. And she's like, I don't have any, I don't know what to do. So this was a part of state licensing restrictions and this sort of fear mentality, I think, that many of us approach birth with. And I'm not going to say that I wasn't afraid, but I also, I, you know, it's kind of, kind of cliche, but I took an oath. Like, I went into this work to take care of people. And if I really think I'm, I'm hot shit, I better show up for this person. So I took her very, very late in her care, didn't really know much about her. And then I had this Twins Breach Conference, which concluded a couple weeks ago um, in mid-August. And two days after that, she went into labor at 42 weeks. And I told you that I was surprised by a scrotum presenting before a head. Surprise breach. It was almost like the universe. It was this cosmic giggle like, oh, this guy, this guy talks so much about this. Let's see what he does with this one. And sure enough, she had a, a fine birth. And um, she did, the baby did require some assistance. And we did transfer at the last minute um, the baby just to get some extra hands on him. But all in all, she did just fine and she avoided that. But our licensure and this stratification and hierarchical sort of way of viewing skills based on your credentials, it's not complete. It's not a complete package as to where a person falls when they develop that type of story. And at the, at the very front of this conversation is people want options. And if we have state or federal leg legislation or we have... Um, even horizontal violence, you know, judgment between midwives in certain regions as to what we consider standard of care, this term standard of care is really tricky, then you actually are, are, are limiting the options for the people that we're here to care for. So on the one hand, yeah, I think it has done some good. On the other hand, yeah, I think it has done some bad when we really should be centering this around how can we as a collective take the best care of this person? And that's where I think maybe the later in this conversation we can get into you know the role of traditional midwifery and really how we might help to shift this giant uh, aircraft carrier around which is maternity care in the Americas you know specifically United States but before before we do any comments on that because I want to get into the interventions that you were talking about for breach as well um no no I I um, I like that story. I like the your surprise story. Do you think the baby had been in that breach presentation for a while, or do you think it turned toward the mm. end? I felt a butt in her upper right upper quadrant when I saw them at thirty eight weeks, uh -huh. and they had a um, they had a, an OBGYN who told them that the baby was was head down in the hospital at that time as well, like in the clinical setting. But I think that they were using Leopold's as well. So mm -hmm. I could have been wrong. Totally could have been wrong. I'm I'm open to that. Um, but you know, if the risk is three to 4%, there's still a chance that if I had no idea what I was feeling, there's a 94% chance maybe that I would have been right in saying head down. So, so, uh, who knows? I mean, Leop the Leopold's maneuvers aren't perfect, but I was, I'm pretty certain I felt a butt and there was a hard head down by the bladder. Like I was pretty sure of that. And we know sometimes babies turn even very, very late. So Absolutely. this could have been a, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a chance that I was presented with. Um, yeah. to, answer, to answer your question as vaguely as possible. <laughs> and did you feel confident after you just did the Breach and Twins conference uh, um, when you saw that scrotum? 
You know, I didn't even realize it was a scrotum at first. I was like, what the hell is this? Like, I was delusional. I was deluding myself. I was like, I can't be a, like, I, it was like, yeah, it might be a breach or whatever. Cause the exam, the first exam, I don't usually do exams in, in labor either. So I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have felt like, oh, I don't feel suture lines. You know, the cervix is closed, but I don't feel any suture lines. It's not that type of practice that I have. Right. So it wasn't until she was starting to feel the urge to push that I uh, actually, what, what prompted me to do the exam was that her fetal heart tone started, you know, creeping up and I was, and there was a little bit of meconium in the fluid. So I was like, Hmm, we're getting close to pushing here, but we have to balance out this meconium with yeah. the realities of transferring to the hospital. And I'm glad we didn't because they would have rushed her to the operating room for the breach, but, yeah. but it was a balancing act. And so I finally did the exam and I told the duo, I was like, that was a funny exam. Like, I wonder if the baby's breached. That was the only whisper of that into the space. And then sure enough, there was a scrotum there. And, and, and you know, the scrotums, a scrotum gets a really swollen. So yes. it didn't really look like, it didn't look like a scrotum with a penis. It was just like, Oh, like a little sack of some sort. And it, I honestly, I feel so silly saying it, but I was like, it could be a whole bunch of things. Maybe there's a, an anomaly, like a vaginal septum. I've had that happen to me before. It was just like, and then sure enough, first push anus and the doula was like, I think it's a scrotum. And I was like, I do too. <laughs> so upright, one knee down, one foot up and a couple pushes, the baby was out and uh, just need a little low and nudge in order to flex the chin because uh, we'll talk about some of the signs, but I can reflect back on this case and tell you what I was seeing and why I did a little intervention. But apart from the baby's heart rate coming up a little bit, there was a totally normal pregnancy. She, by the way, her pressures were better than my blood pressures even at 42 weeks. And that's because Beautiful. she really did a good job. We supplemented with organ meats and magnesium. And I gave them a bunch of supplements because I knew it was going to be a cost for them. But um, she avoided all the stuff that the medical system was actually worried about, like the rupture of uterus, uh, you know, mm -hmm. for the uterine rupture and the yeah. severe preeclampsia and all that. So anyways. Um, did she feel triumphant afterwards? But I mean, not only did she have a V-back after two C-sections, she had a home birth and she had a breach. Home Surprise birth. breach. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, that wow. was a tr tremendous, uh, that is a powerful couple. Uh, their, their communication and connection, I think carried them through a very, very stressful, we got to resuscitate and get this baby to the hospital, which yeah. I did all the resuscitation in the back of an SUV while the father's father was doing the bag and I was getting the seal and giving him the timing and whatnot. And, um, and, the baby did totally fine. In fact, when we got there, they were like, so tell us the story. And the baby's pink and making baby noises. <laughs> oh, well, that's uh, like I was trying to get my nervous system calmed down. I was crying on the bed because I saw the baby pinking up and I was like, this baby's fine. But like, holy smokes, what a ride, you know, at the very yeah. end. So all of the stuff that, <laughs> which is a. I said, I've been there. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm sure. And, and, uh, and. And this wasn't even like a, a breach that required maneuvers. This was a very classic Frank breach, legs out, arms out, little push, chins out, and we've got a baby, like no problem at all. So um, I think that their communication and their connection and their like ownership of this decision to have a home birth is really what carried them through. They really, going back to what you said about choosing your path here, they really, really were were dedicated to this. Like they were like, what to hell or high water, we're going to do this together. And that to me was very beautiful, very touching. I got some beautiful photos of them. I was like, God, you guys are just incredible. This is really what, this is the magic right here. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it all worth it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
So tell me a little bit, you know, Christine, you've, how many breaches have you attended if you even kept count? I'm curious. Yeah, I keep track um, for my own stats. As of this spring, um, it's uh, an even 520. I attended, I attended two this spring. Um, oh, man, that's so, a lot of breaches. <laughs> yeah, but I, I went to some places that had really uh, high volume. Um, like in Afghanistan, we had uh, 700 births a month. So, so about 25 of those were breaches a month, roughly. So that's a lot. It's wow. Uh, you know, it, it's, it compiles. So. so we're talking like seven, uh, what, 80, about 8,000 births a year at that camp? Yeah, the, uh, it was, uh, it's a maternity hospital in the Panjshir Valley in, uh, in, uh, in Afghanistan. Wow. Yeah. So in, in all of the times that you have had to, in, to intervene or to really think, maybe let's start there. You're, you're there, you're waiting. A woman is, is giving birth. What I was taught in the hospital to do, even for a head down baby, was like on the back, your hands are on the vulva, you're, you're doing all this touching and stuff. That's what I was taught every single time. And before that even, it was put forceps on every single baby. There was a lot of intervention. I mm -hmm. suspect that in this setting and in your practice, you're going to be sitting on your hands and just waiting. And when you're needed, there's maybe some basic things that need to be done, which we can get into after. But in that time that you're sitting there um, being present, not just focus, it's not just a head thing, but you're feeling into this. Mm -hmm. What are some of the signs that tell you, I better act, I better act now? In terms of when the baby is actually being born or at any point in time? In I, guess at, I guess at any point in time in labor. Well, if we're talking specifically about breaches, um, most, of, most of the time the labors will go rather smoothly. And the ones where uh, they're taking a little bit longer or descent is a little bit slower, those are the ones where that make me just watch how everything is progressing uh, in general. And then, uh, you know, of course, I'm listening to the baby, just taking everything into account. But basically, for with breach in labor, I don't treat it any different than cephalic. So yeah. I change course with a breech baby at the same point I would with a cephalic baby. And this mm. is what I tell other midwives or providers to do. If you would change course with a cephalic, whether that means go and lay on your left side because your right side, you're on your right side and the heart tones aren't great, whatever that means, um, getting up and moving them or, or transporting, whatever that means in that situation. Um, that's what I tell people to do. If, if you ask yourself the question, would I change course if this baby was cephalic and your answer is no, then carry on. And so then I do. And, uh, and if it's maybe, then, and depending on your environment, if you're at home, if you're away from a place where you might need intervention and depending on the politics where you are, all of these things come into play. Oh, yeah. And what you know that these people would want, you might want to have a discussion with them. And if the answer is maybe, then maybe you do need to act and err on the side of caution um, with the breach only because when they go south, they go south quickly, but also you're 
going to be blamed no matter what. And it's why didn't you, why wasn't she birthing in a hospital and why they're just sure. more politically charged. So again, it just depends on where you are and what your environment is. But when I don't have those things hanging over my head, then I am able to just make decisions based on what is in front of me. And then of course, collaboration with the, the mother. This is the situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So when people think about um, like birth planning, for example, they think of it as like a checklist. I want this and not want this. The problem is that yeah. if we're going to treat it like a sushi menu, your and to use that as an allegory, your appetite for tuna, salmon, or fried shrimp might change on a moment to moment basis. So just because you said this is what you want, hey, there's more information available now what would you like to do? That's actually what this counseling thing, that's actually the hardest part of birth work. And that's the thing, the hardest thing to train is to understand that it is our job to provide, not using like coercive, scary language, but to say, hey, listen, here's what I was feeling before. Here's what I'm feeling now. Given that I, you have this new impression from your person that you've hired or that is here attending to you, what, which, which, which way would you like me to go? Or would you like to go? And let me see how I can shift our resources and our focus to make sure that you stay on the path that feels right to you right now. That's a really hard thing to do, especially I'm, I'm sure in, in Afghanistan or elsewhere in the world when you where you haven't spoken the language. So how do you always have like an interpreter doing this like moment to moment kind of thing? Not always. Sometimes I oh. have to rely on the national staff that may or may not interpret what I'm actually saying. Uh, they might interpret what they would like to say or what they would like for me to be saying. So it's not always um, it's not always the same. And then, of course, um, those women have a different view of birth and they feel like I'm here for you to take care of me. Whatever you need to do, just do that. You know, sure. not, except when it comes down, you know, if, it, if it's a situation where um, where it's cesarean and we have to, which is pretty rare because it's only for maternal indications, but then we really have a, a, a conversation with them. Um, and usually it's the couple because in a lot of these places, it's the man that makes the decision if the woman gets mm. the cesarean or not. Um, and she will say, well, what does my husband want to do? And he has to be brought in on the conversation and he's the one that actually has to sign the paperwork. And so that's a hard thing to deal with in the field, but that's a whole other, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so we do have the conversations and we talk about um, births moving forward after cesarean and those, those sorts of things. But, um, but generally speaking, if it's like, we need to put in a urinary catheter, they're like, well, I don't care, whatever you need to do. Like they don't want to discuss the pros and cons or alternatives they're expecting us to take care of them. So it's coming from a little bit different um, place, but I don't treat them any differently than I would somebody here. It's still very respectful care. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm mindful of, of what they may or may not want. Yeah. You know, I'm really curious about the sort of um, history of what we would call traditional midwifery, which is really an Americanized term. But I'm curious, what is historically what has been the path for women giving birth? Um, I'm going to use the term. So let me go back. Let me, let me give some context for what I'm about to say. Midwifery in its traditional sense survived when 
the European way of caring for women in childbirth, maternity care, was adopted through the German style of medical education. And mm -hmm. midwives and every other alternative modality, so to speak, even though that was a majority, it was kind of pushed off to the periphery. The reason it survived is because not everybody could afford to go to these new fancy schmancy hospitals. So women, even in feudalistic Europe, who mm -hmm. couldn't afford the fancy stuff that the rich white people were getting, they were still going to what you would maybe call lay midwives, who were women who cared for women, who learned from their mothers and their grandmothers and everything else. Is there the same sort of um, history rooted in the Middle East or in Afghanistan um, for those women who couldn't afford to go to the fancy hospitals? Hey guys, it's Nathan. Sorry for this brief interruption, but I got to tell you about a new offering that I'm going to be uh, making available this fall. You've heard about the Born Free Method. That's our comprehensive pregnancy and postpartum program. That includes 12 months of weekly calls, 100 plus video modules, tons of citations around pregnancy and postpartum. Well, Born Free is an umbrella under which there's going to be a lot of other courses. And the second course in this anthology is called Clear and Free, Your Solution to Persistent HPV. It's a collaborative effort between me and Mimi Linquist of the Medicine Podcast. She um, is a relative expert in, uh, I say relative because I don't consider anybody a full expert in anything, but Mimi has gone deep into human papillomavirus and some of the ways that we can use lifestyle to augment the immune system in hopes that your routine screening for HPV or your routine pap smears are going to come up negative and clear. So you can go another three to five years and not even think about it until your next um, appointment, whereby hopefully you'll screen negative again. So the typical path that many women experience of all ages in their OBGYN clinic is, hey, you're due for a pap smear and we're going to test for HPV as well. If one of those comes back abnormal, your OBGYN is going to say, oh, darn it, it's abnormal. Why don't you come back for a repeat screening in six months or 12 months? And this process continues, right, until you end up with either a progression of abnormal cells in the cervix caught on pap smear or a persistence of human papillomavirus, meaning your body has not been able to integrate the message of this virus, right? Remember, viruses are not living things. So in the meantime, your OBGYN or your midwife or nurse practitioner hasn't given you any tools in order to help support your immune system through diet, through movement, through sleep, through stress management, through hydration, through all of those modifiable lifestyle factors so that you can be sure that if you had an HPV um, positive screen initially, that the next time it's going to be negative. Mm -hmm. Now, the other part of that conversation, of course, is, hey, I got the HPV vaccine. Aren't I safe now? Well, the problem with Gardasil 9, which is the primary vaccine that is offered to young men and women as early as age nine, has not been demonstrated to be either effective at preventing cervical cancer nor safe because of the aluminum adjuvants and everything else. So there's a lot of controversy around HPV and cervical cancer and even cervical cancer screening methods along with this vaccine. What do I do? Should I get it? Should I not get it? Should my little girls get this vaccine? And so Given the sort of swirling <laughs> pool of information and misinformation out there, I went deep as well. And Mimi and I teamed up in order to clarify for everybody out there the realities around what 
HPV and cervical cancer screening looks like, what can be done while you're waiting for your follow-ups in order to support your immune system to integrate the message of that virus and avoid any abnormal cells developing and hopefully avoid painful biopsies or even worse, leap procedures, cold knife comb procedures, and of course, worst case scenario, cervical cancer. There's so much that's in your power. Your doctors, your practitioners probably aren't maybe ed educated or incentivized to share all of that information, but we're going to do that through this course, as well as all of the reality realities around vaccines, especially Gardasil 9. Um, we look at data from the United States and elsewhere in the world. We speak to um, attorneys who are litigating on this topic around Gardasil 9. What you can expect from the course is around 90 lessons, self-guided and we're going to also offer monthly calls for six months after you enroll with me and Mimi, where we're going to be able to answer all of your questions and provide you with that support that perhaps you aren't getting from the healthcare professionals that you've entrusted um, your, your cervical cancer screening and your well woman care. So we get into HPV, we get into cervical cancer screening, we get into the immune system, vaccines, viruses. It's everything you've wanted to know about any of those topics. Go to the link in the show notes and you'll find your way to book an enrollment call and we'll get you enrolled right there. We're going to be enrolling in October. I hope to see you there. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's the same. I find that all over the world, Everywhere. wherever I go. And I do still trained uh, traditional birth attendants, traditional midwives. And I did in Oaxaca, Mexico last uh, back in uh, July. Um, and also in Guatemala, uh, they were brought in by some other um, licensed midwives or trained midwives. They were brought in in vans to be able to learn um breach birth skills. And it was, uh, it was just a joy to be training them because they, it was amazing because I, I had a, a set amount of maneuvers I was going to do with them. And so it's a little bit different than if you came and did simulations with me next week, um, because right. a, I'm teaching in a different language and B, their yeah. understanding, their, their way of being with birth is different from ours. Um, even though birth is the same. So we have the simulator. I demonstrate the side-to-side -side maneuver for the arms and I demonstrate the love set maneuver and extraction maneuver for them. There were six of them. One by one, they came up and they each did the side-to-side -side maneuver perfection. Like not like, I, I never have had, I, I have obstetricians that have a hard time. They go the wrong <laughs> way and they're like, wait, up, down, right, pulling. No, no, no pulling. And and then I'm like, okay, here's love set. So this is going to be hard, but it's okay. You guys will get it. We'll practice one by one. They all came up with perfection and did the love set maneuver. And I sat there and I, I was almost in tears. And I'm like, you guys, like, how? <laughs> and then I realized, okay, they're, they're traditionally trained. They are illiterate. They do not read books on these things. They watch other midwives, this is how they learn. They talk, mm. they tell stories, they talk, they demonstrate, they show. And so that's what they, they were laser focused on me and paying attention when I was demonstrating. And they all came up and did it because that's how they do it. And wow. I, I realized that and I, I was just blown away. It was not a fluke. 
that they all six one by one came up. It was, and I think they each watched each other do it. And it's like, oh yeah, I can do that. And it was just amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. And so um, they have other ways. I asked them to show me and demonstrate what they've done to get breech babies out. And so it was more of an exchange rather than I am here to teach you. I, I don't approach it that way at all. It's like, okay, we're here together. So tell me what you know. Tell me your stories. Tell me what your experience is. And you meet them where they are. And then, um, then it's an exchange of information. Yeah. You know, my, my wife is Mexican. I probably told you this. But when I, uh, we were just down in Mexico back in May or June and my mother-in-law she organized a Temescal with a friend, like, yeah. a, like a childhood friend. And after yeah. the Temescal, the woman who ran the Temescal, she's a curandera who started as a, as a like Western conventional doctor and had some mm -hmm. life circumstances that put her on the path of, of becoming a Temescalera. And afterwards she was talking to me because she was so, she was so captivated that I was an OBGYN and, and I was, um, I don't know. She, she just was like, tell me more about like what you do and, when she found out that I work with so many midwives, she was like, oh, you should come down and teach the parteras that I work with. I've got like a hundred that come to me and I help with different herbal remedies and then they take them back to their clients. And And I said, well, and this was all in Spanish, so I'm paraphrasing everything, but I said, well, why don't you tell me about what the parteras are doing? And she said, oh, well, they start when they're 12 or 13 going to births with their mothers. Yep. And by the time they're 70 or 75, many of them have you know, eclipsed 10, 15,000 births. Yeah. And I was like, you want me to go down and teach them? Are you, are you fucking crazy? Like I want to yeah. go and learn from them, you know, yeah. but I'm sure that, you know, like you said, a lot of them are, are, are illiterate and going back to what we were talking about before, the reason that they're so busy and they're going to like 20 births a month sometimes is mm -hmm. that the, the, the social, the, the, in, in what, 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 what would I say? The, the inequality gap, we'll just call it, in Mexico is so stark that you actually almost have a feudalistic society where the majority of women are not able to afford, nor do they want, the care of a public hospital because their C-section rate is 85%. You know, So they're like, I'm just going to do this at home. We can't afford a taxi. It's too much work. I've got five children already. And this woman who's been doing this since 13 just shows up, does all of the things, uses the riboso. And has all of the skills that you could possibly ask for. And then some beyond stuff I've ever even seen before. So there's a lot yeah. of wisdom there, I think, tied into these, these lineages yeah. of, of parteras yeah. and, and elsewhere, birth workers in the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. my favorite part of my work, even with MSF, is meeting the traditional birth attendants and hearing their stories and asking, what is it I can do to help you? And you know what they'll say sometimes? Well, during rainy seasons, we really need umbrellas and we would like some solar flash. <laughs> they don't want to hear from me like, oh, what do I, how do I do this? Or that? They know how to do this or that. <laughs> they want yeah. stuff. Yeah. And yeah, so they need I stuff. get them stuff. I get them yeah. their umbrellas and their, their solar flashlights and then they're really grateful. And we, yeah. and that, but we still do an exchange and we talk about warning signs in pregnancy and, you know, when they might need to get somebody to the health clinic and so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, so that is what our exchange is like. But when I ask them what they need from me, that's their answer. They don't need my knowledge of midwifery. They have their own knowledge of midwifery. Absolutely. I respect it tremendously. The stories they tell me are just incredible. So, 
You know, I was talking to my barber the other day, and I've told this story on this podcast before, but he was he was like kind of, you know, pissy that day when he was cutting my hair. And he said, you know, I'm just pissed. The barber board of, of law of Kentucky has determined that the apprenticeship model of barbering is no longer valid. You have to go to school, which is expensive, and then you have to find some apprenticeship on your own dime to learn how to do this in person before you're able to open up your, you know, hang your shingle or, you know, so to speak. Yep. And I was thinking... Um, <laughs> when my father was learning how to fix things, like the reason my dad and, you know, that generation was so good with their hands is because they just learned from being around other people who had learned in that same way. Yeah. And my dad was a mechanic and all of that. But the, the point here is that there is only so far you can get by reading and listening to this podcast and even going to the Twins Breach Conference you know, these conferences or, you know, midwifery wisdom or to go to Stu's, um, Dr. Stu's workshops or Breach Without Borders. There's only yeah. so much you can learn there. Sometimes yep. it just helps to just park your, park yourself. And like Milo Chavira came down to learn with you in Mexico. Just park yeah. yourself and just like open your palms up and receive. And sometimes there's so much more there to learn than what you can get in Williams Obstetrics or, or, or whatever else. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I listen to whoever I can because there's always stuff I'm constantly learning and, uh, and I love it. That's what's so yeah. beautiful about this kind of work. Um, thank you for sharing all that. This is so, this is such a fun flow. I wonder if you could talk a little bit, maybe specifically to breach and intervention. Um, David Hayes always says one of your colleagues, one of my friends and colleagues, he always says, I actually, I actually prefer a breach because there's so many more ways to assess how the baby's doing. So I know I have a, I have a better sense as to when to intervene. Is that something that you're, you want to talk about today? Maybe you can talk a little bit about like, okay, it's time to intervene now. We're at the pushing stage. Things have slowed down, as you mentioned. Um, she's not feeling well, um, you know, barring blood pressures and all this other kind of metric stuff. What are some of the signs, like the sort of physiologic things that you that give you a sense that it might be time to step in and actually do some of these schmancy maneuvers that we're all learning at the workshops? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. And a, and a lot of um, questions I get from students when I'm teaching is, so, um, so what maneuver do you usually do for the arms? And I'm like, I cannot tell you. I have, to know, right one. <laughs> I have to know the situation. Like I, there's, Breach birth is so incredibly beautiful because it's so nuanced. There mm. are such, there's so many things to take into consideration. And, um, and so, yeah, I love it. And I love that you, there are so many things like David said that you can, um, that you're able to assess from the baby, the baby's right there. We can see all of these things in the cord and the crunching, you know, the, the tone, the baby pulling its legs up or not, um, and the color and all of those things um, together are going to be influencing my decision making, as well as how was the whole rest of the labor? Is this a primate? Is this a multip? How is she pushing? Um, is this a big baby? Is it a small baby? How were the heart tones prior? All of this stuff is going to be taken into consideration. So I'm, I might have two babies right next to each other with the same exact thing going on, hanging halfway out. And I'm going to do two completely different things or not with, um, with them based on all of the information that I have. How close are the contractions? Are they every four minutes? 
oh, well, something needs to be done because we're right. not waiting four minutes at this point. And so it's so difficult to just answer a question because it's so nuanced and that's what's so amazing about it. And um, and then this, um, you know, now that I am thinking about it more because people ask me questions, a lot more questions now that I'm teaching. And so now that I'm thinking about it more, I kind of evaluated um, the last time I had to do anything, which was just rotating the baby from transverse uh, sacrum transverse to sacrum anterior, um, just because it, that needed to be done for a variety of reasons. But I remember thinking afterwards, OK, what was what did you base your decision making on there? And it was everything happened so quickly in my head. And it was just such an intuition because I have been to so many breech births that I just know, oh, let's do this. Another baby I might have left completely alone, but this one I needed to um, to do this little rotational maneuver. And I didn't realize till after it was just it just came up within me. Oh, just do this. There was no real thought process about it that's it seems odd to say I mean obviously there was but I acted so quickly um and it's just because I I knew and so that kind of that kind of stuff is very difficult to impart if you're just starting to do breach and so and the only way to learn it is just to to be doing it and keep doing it watch a lot of videos um and and then you start to learn and intuit a little bit more and um, and so a lot of my um, a lot of what I do just comes from the experience and the intuition. So it's yeah. really difficult to explain. I can tell you exactly if I'm on a video why I did something or not. I can watch videos, which I do frequently. I debrief with a lot of midwives or peer review or providers. And we we talk and I it's like right there, right at this is where I would intervene and this is what I would do. I can pinpoint in any video. Now, what would have been the result of my intervention? We'll never know. Yeah. I would have tried something, but, and then it's also difficult um, because they, because you just, you're, you really aren't there. So maybe if I was actually in the room and could feel you know, the, because there's a feeling, <laughs> there's, there's a feeling that comes with birth, at least there is for me. And so I might not have done that. But primarily what I'm going to say is I do very few interventions because um, maternal position change is going to get us out of almost, almost everything where we need to do a little maneuver. That's not the same as something being super stuck. I can recognize when, uh-oh, this is not good. And we, we have to do something right now. But if it's a matter of sweeping down an arm or just a little rotation here, I prefer maternal position change hands down. And that's more of a, a midwifery sort of thing. It's because for us, birth is very mother led. And so that's the first thing we're going to do. And I think it's easy to depersonalize um, breech birth, especially if a a woman is on her hands and knees or standing because we're behind her. Right. And so we I'm seeing that people are forgetting there's a person behind the pelvis and just saying, hey, move a little bit. Let's get this moving. And I was at a, um, a good example as I was at a beautiful um, Zoom birth the other day. A CNM friend of mine uh, messaged me and said, will you 
zoom in and just be there in case I need something. I'm like, sure, I will. And it was beautiful. Everything was going really well. And everything's coming down. The arm still needed to come. And instead of going and doing something, the baby was losing a little tone. I didn't say anything because it wasn't crucial yet. And then suddenly the mother kind of lifted up. She lifted a leg just a little bit and it resembled, um, it resembled a dog like peeing on a fire hydrant, right? I never in a million years would say, just lift your leg like a dog peeing on a fire. We'd probably say, um, uh, get into runner's pose, do something like, because we're just thinking to, and this yeah. woman just intuitively did this thing. And you watch this one arm come down, then the other, and I'm literally there clapping. I, I'm on mute, but I'm clapping <laughs> on my end going, yes, this is what I'm talking about. And it was just so beautiful because this midwife waited and she saw the mother start to move. She's like, yeah, just move a little bit. And those arms came down and it was just so beautiful. And that's what I'm talking about. That's what's missing right now because we're, it's a little bit more um, maneuver focused because we're all sure. excited because we're learning these wonderful maneuvers and they are wonderful. Yeah. Um, but I think we're focusing a little bit too much on them, but rightly so, because I'm doing simulations and teaching maneuvers. If it was all about maternal position change, there would be nothing to do. But sure. I do talk a lot about that as well. So. I don't know. Does yeah. that make sense? Does that answer your question? Yeah. yeah. I mean, a couple other things that I've I've heard, you know, the, the whole like belly crunch thing is always like everybody in the room when we're watching videos is like, yeah, like they're holding <laughs> their breath for it. Um, yeah. I've heard about, you know, monitoring with the Doppler. I've mo heard of monitoring the cord. Is the cord big and juicy? But I've mm -hmm. seen just as many videos where the cord is kind of like, you know, flaccid looking. And the baby's just fine, and then cord is juicy, and the baby doesn't do well. So it's like I don't know if that's a perfect exactly. gauge either. So exactly, no, that's why I'm saying it's nuanced. You can't yeah. go by one or the other. And when I teach my breach and twins class, which is different from simulations, it's usually the next day. I talk about that, and I have this beautiful picture by I forget what the midwifery. Um, I I credit her on my slide. Um, but there's this baby at the pinkest baby I have ever seen doing this. It's just down to its head and it's crunching its arms and its legs. And there's this completely white cord. Like, I'm like, if you palpated this cord, what do you think you'd feel? And everybody goes, nothing. And I'm like, do you think the baby has no heart tones? <laughs> and they're like, oh, no. I'm like, you are correct. It's a zombie so, baby. A zombie baby is what we're looking at. <laughs> yes. you, so you can't go by just one thing. You have to evaluate all the things at once. And and I was never taught to um, to either palpate the cord or listen. First of all, I didn't start out with Dopplers anyway. So I never do that now because I just never was taught that. I'm always just looking at the baby and I'm basing what I'm going to do on that. And it's usually, like I said, first a maternal position change, and then I'll do an intervention if I need to, and hopefully the minimal amount. But yeah, you you are exactly right on that. Um, yeah. You can't just go by one thing. You have to take the big picture yeah. into account. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, the way you're describing it is as much a feel for... Um, when to intervene as you would say like uh, like how to rub your partner's feet it's not like use this pressure at this point you're kind of just letting your hands guide or like kissing your 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 child or whatever like you just kind of let your hands guide 
be guided by the the feedback you're getting from not even just the foot, but like from the person's body language and from the, if they're like moaning in a pleasurable way versus wincing in a painful way, like there's so much more to how we show up in any role than just like, here's the step-by-step way to do it. And, you know, I was contrasting in my head. I was thinking, man, a couple of the breaches that I saw when I was in residency, the very few, there was almost always an epidural. Person was almost always in bright lights on their back. Mm-hmm. And there was a pair of pipers ready and there was all these instruments around and we were reviewing the love set. This, 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 over and over and over before the, you know, the, the baby started emerging. And, and then I think back to that experience where the woman felt intuitively, I better lift my leg a little bit this way and bam, arms are out. Like mm-hmm. how much do we that, of that do we lose when we, we get ahead of ourselves and worry about all those things? Like perhaps we would have better outcomes in in the United States, even in a hospital setting. Like, I'm not saying we should just do this in the community, but that is sort of emerging as the only space you can have a breech baby. But how much better would our outcomes be if we just let some of the mother's own body movements kind of take this over? We've learned that from head down birth. Why not, you know, just surrender this, the reins for just a moment to like see if mom's intuition as to how to move might actually facilitate physiologic breach vaginal breech birth. Yeah. Just uh just conjecture into the universe there. <laughs> yeah. No, but it it's true. And because that that's what midwives learn. Just physically don't mess with birth. Let her walk around, let her eat and drink, let her do what she wants to do. Yeah. And it's the breach should be no different. And and especially um with breach, we know that physiological birth is is more advantageous. And but you know to to address that uh, breach, you know, that home is kind of the only place or out of hospital is the only place we can really do breach at, at this point for the most part. Uh, we I did train uh, two hospital uh, in in two hospitals uh, just last month with David. Uh, oh, one, Northwestern David is that and the one? And I, mm-hmm, yeah. Northwestern and then uh, and then Aurora Sinai in Milwaukee. And so that was all together almost a hundred obstetricians who uh, residents attendings. Um, there were some GPs, there were some fellows and it was incredible. Mm-hmm. And they were just riveted. They were eating the information up and it was really beautiful because, um, the residents were just so eager. And even the attendings were like, wow, this is a game changer. And, uh, you know, I, we were talking about physiological birth when we were doing simulations and I heard one of the attendings say to the residents, well, if you want to learn about birth, just go go and uh, hang out with the midwives on, on the floor. You'll learn about <laughs> like birth. Yeah, that's right. And I'm like, they're not required to do that a- anyway. Like, yeah. and, and I said, absolutely hang out with the midwives. You will learn everything you want to know about, uh, about birth from them. They're, they're going to be your best teachers. So yeah. um, hopefully they, you know, they will do that, but it's, it's amazing that they were super receptive and they were very eager to, to be doing this and learning this. And I, so I have a hope that the tide will turn. It's starting too slowly um, because that's a lot of physicians to train. And, and even when we don't train in hospitals and when we're doing our workshops, I usually have an OB or two come 
and sometimes GPs, I usually in almost every session, there's usually a few physicians and it's just really wonderful. And they're the ones that really want the information. And uh, oh, yeah. so two that I trained in May, listen, this is fantastic. Two that I trained in May, I saw again when I went to Milwaukee, they came down early to train um, because they also wanted to take the, the twins and breach class after the simulations and they wanted the full simulation day. And we were just doing simulations at the hospital. So then I saw them both again and they each had done a breach birth since I trained them. And the one who- No kidding. Yeah, the one who always, um, she said, I, you know, we do, I do breaches, um, but I do breach extractions for second twins. And I'm like, okay. And then they learned in the twin class that I gave that you don't have, have to extract a second twin if there's no distress. She learned it. She came up to me and she said, I, I did, I did one. I had a second twin and it was just incredible. No, I'm, she was supine, but but that's because she was holding on to the first baby. And I'm like, don't make excuses. I don't care what position she was. And when I watched the video, she really, she was, yeah, she was sort of supine, but it's not like she was in lithotomy position. She was kind of upright and it was this incredible birth. And, and she was so excited to tell me this and her face was glowing. And I was just like, I loved every second of it. And then she said, and afterwards, the, the, well, the, first of all, the, everyone in the room was going kind of nuts because she was doing this, right? She was teaching uh, a resident. And, um, and then the neonatologist came up to her afterwards and said, don't you usually extract those? And she said, I used to. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my That's gosh. So amazing. It's, yes, it, it's so amazing. And it's stuff like that that gives me hope. And so, um, yeah, they're pushing some of these. Some of these providers in the hospital are pushing the envelope. They want to meet the meet their the needs of their clients who are coming and saying, I don't want a cesarean for this. So yeah. it's really kind of beautiful. And I, I have some hope. Oh man. Yeah. I you know, I um well, first off, shout out to Northwestern and Aurora Sinai. I what I like to believe is that these conversations and my advocacy on social media and through my collaborator program with midwives and just generally saying, "Hey, listen, if if I'm going to be an expert in birth, I need to also know these skills." And I'm not an expert because I don't have these skills yet. I'm still practicing. I'm still going through Breach Pro or Breach Without Borders, the the online modules. I'm still trying to go and learn from you guys. Because this is an area that as eager as I was when I was in residency, it just the opportunity wasn't there when you're in residency. And you have very few days to leave your program and go train and whatnot. Um, but I was really excited to, to see at the, the conference um, here in Louisville. Um, this was the first Twins Breach Conference. And we're going to do another one next year. But the first one, I was surprised. There were as a, a family medicine resident and an OBGYN resident who both came. They took off time. And they both reached out and they were like, or at least one of them had said, listen, if I can get time off, is there a way you can make an exception? I know the you know, registration's closed. And I was like, if you're going to come out here, like I will make sure we have a spot for you. Because that yeah. eagerness, we are all so eager in residency. We all want to know this stuff. But if it's not being provided, if we're not facilitating that, mm -hmm. it's just, it's just going to fall dead in its tracks. That eagerness just goes away and it gets put towards something else, like getting really good at hysterectomies or really good at yeah. whatever, you know. Um, so, um, so good on those two programs. And, um, I think that this is a nice bridge. 
Oh, and, and one other thing I wanted to say is that anybody out there who's in residency, or if you're a program director who is, for whatever reason, listening to my podcast, I'm not so sure many program directors love me. Uh, my program director didn't really love me. She you know, tried to love me, but I was just so um, disobedient with the protocols and the things that were demanded of me. Um, but if you have the opportunity as a resident to go and sit with physiologic birth, right? I don't even know if I really care for that term, but whatever it is that a midwife does in your community, go and learn it. Because it's not just physiology. It's actually also the sort of intuitive side of just being present and being still during this very sacred process. The midwives in your programs, CNMs, CPMs, LMs, a radical midwife who's flying under the radar in your community, go and be with them and just spend time seeing how midwives work, how they work with people. It is not at all going to be what you learn in, in, in your program. And it might even inspire you to become an MD CPM or an MD whatever. Like you, maybe you can straddle those two worlds. I, I would really love to see that being kind of how we shift. And so, um, Christine, thank you for sharing today. I just have one final question as a little, and we'll, we can keep it short because I want to be respectful of your time, but given what we just talked about with this sort of tension between the hospital system and um, let's just call it community-based birth workers, and then a lot of tension within community-based, the community-based birth workforce, whatever you want to call that. Mm -hmm. What do you see as an important, maybe you can like leave some resounding wisdom as to what you've learned in working with a variety of midwives from a variety of different countries and languages, but also socioeconomics within the United States, um, different licensures that we've talked about, different certifications, different credentials, all of this. It seems like we're all kind of trying to determine what the best way is, but I don't see that being very helpful to us in really centering care again around the women who need it. So given all of your experience and variety of backgrounds um, and teaching so many different students and finding this eagerness, what insights can you share around returning maybe to the heart of, of maternity care, which I think from what I have appreciated so far, really is a is a calling back maybe to the traditional practice of birth work or midwifery. Can, can you just share any anything that comes up for you in that space? I mean, it it's. I think that um, if we had a model of care where midwives primarily took care of pregnant women and obstetricians were there to mm -hmm. take care of women that um, also needed um, other um, more, a little more advanced care because of underlying health conditions and things like that. That's, that's what they do in New Zealand. They have a beautiful, every single woman, no matter what gets assigned a midwife, every single woman in New Zealand. Wow. And I liked that, um, when I was there and they explained that to me, and I think if we had um, a system where midwifery care was the standard of care, um, first of all, we would save a lot of money. We would have much happier um, uh, clients and better outcomes in the hospitals and, you know, just everywhere. And, uh, and then obstetricians could do what they were trained to do, which was to deal with problems and anything that falls outside of this isn't quite um, 
<laughs> this isn't quite right. And it's we in we surgery. Need, That's we what OBGYNs are good for. Yeah. We, yeah, we need we need surgery here, or I think we would see a fall in the C-section rate, and we would we would definitely see um, uh, we would see the system sort of turn around and be. I I I don't I think that that is probably not going to happen anytime soon, but that seems to be what works best in the countries where. Um, where they have lower C-section rates and, and higher patient satisfaction and much less um, obstetric violence and so forth. But, you know, there are no easy answers. And like you said, there's a lot of division even in the, the community-based birth worker yeah. movement. Yeah. Yeah, but I oh, think we just need to continue to work together and keep the dialogue up. I'm so grateful for the obstetricians that I know that I teach with David and and Stuart Fishbein and and Milo um, Chavira and uh, Larry Lehman and uh, De Denny Hartung. I don't want to miss anybody. They're all so incredibly wonderful. I've taught with all of them um, of breach simulations, and it's fantastic. And and they understand the responsibility that they have. Uh, to midwifery and to ad the advancement of breach, um, breach birth and the art of breach birth. And so it's really wonderful to have them on our side and you as well, of course. Yeah. Well, I, I'm still, I still feel like I'm a little child when I'm around all of these, you know, instructors and, and, you know, going forward with this conference, you know, I invited people that I had directly worked with and the idea for, for the 2023, the first one was half OBs, half midwives as a means of getting a little bit of both. But then we had to replace, you know, you had some things come up. So we had to replace them with the first person who responded was Denny Hartung. And then we had this imbalance. And, and I think that next year, I think we'll take a break from the obstetrics and we'll actually really, you know, bring in as many traditional midwives and, uh, you know, midwives of all walks of life really to go in and provide this fully from a different lens, because I do think it would make people feel a little bit more included, included, especially if they came from a traditional midwifery path. Um, but I also, beyond that, it's not like a, an optics thing. It's actually, like you said, if you're working with a partera that's, that's done seven, you know, 10,000 births, there's quite a bit to learn there. Like there's far more knowledge there than, than meets the eye. If you're just looking at who wrote the, the history and wrote the textbooks. So Looking ahead to 2024, Christine, I really appreciate our, our um, collegiality and your friendship and your support. And I thank you so much for coming on and, and speaking so elegantly and eloquently and openly about some of these um, kind of tricky, sticky subjects. Well, you're uh, most welcome. As always, it was an honor to be here. It was my pleasure. Yeah. Well, we'll see you next time. Stay in touch and have, um, you said you're going to you're going to, where are you going next? For I'm going to Washington State, uh, Vancouver, Spokane, and Seattle, then Hawaii, Oahu, Maui, and uh, right. Kona. Uh, and then I'm done with teaching for the, the year. I will be at Midwifery Wisdom doing some skills and drills and then uh, a, a presentation about extreme midwifery circumstances and stories. Amazing. So. <laughs> yeah. That, uh, are fun. So, yeah. That's going to be, that's going to be awesome. I'll no longer, I'm not going to be going to midwifery wisdom anymore, but I know it's always a great event. Augustine puts on a great show there and anybody who can go there to learn from you and the variety of speakers there 
are they're they're in for quite a treat if it's their first time. Um, so enjoy, and um, thanks again, Christine. You're welcome. Thank you.